accommodations don't lower the bar. They just allow more people to participate and allow people to be judged on their merits and allow them to rise and fall on their merits rather than a lack of accommodations. Once you make a place accessible, then somebody can succeed or fail based on their own skills. What does it mean to you to be broken? And what does it mean to you to be whole or quote normal? I've been thinking about these questions and it's led to further questions like, what do you focus on that needs to be fixed in yourself or others? And what even informs your views on the difference between broken and whole? And frankly, I wonder who gets to decide what is broken too? I mean, sure, we live in a culture obsessed with fixing anything deemed broken from stuff to people. We buy replacements when something breaks because often we don't know how to fix the thing. Raising my hand. (laughs) And we sure love shiny, new, perfect, efficient. And in the process, we trash things that end up polluting the earth and disregard and discard the value of people when they don't fit a certain definition of enough or functioning or whole. We need to create spaces where we don't see difference as broken. And we do this by not settling for our current ways of navigating our discomfort with difference, while also pushing back on the burden definition of what is normal and what is broken. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with humans who navigate life's challenges and lead in their own ways. Our goal is to learn how they address the burdens they carry, how they learn from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. All right, y'all, today's conversation hits close to home for me, but I also hope it moves you too as you think about the spaces and the people in them you lead and love. Now, my journey with autism in my family has forced me to look at my own ableism as I work hard to advocate for my children and those I work with who are neurodivergent. Now, right after my oldest was diagnosed on the autism spectrum, gosh, it's like about 12 years ago, we were out to dinner with some friends when we shared my daughter's diagnosis. And one of them asked, will you be able to fix it? And it took my breath away. It hurt. It frustrated me because I knew she's not broken and she didn't need to be fixed. And I also knew the world did not see her that way. And I received this message about her again and again and again in various places that we live and engage in our community. And not too long after that conversation, I began to realize the extent to which I needed to help her navigate a world that was not built for her, while simultaneously helping others see she's not broken. I mean, sure, she needs support and accommodations, not because she's broken, but to help her learn and live in a more equitable and effective way. And in fact, what's actually broken is what we deem as normal, healthy, and appropriate. And this commitment has led me to dig deep on my capacity for discomfort and being misunderstood. And This has been built over years (laughs) from times out in public shopping at our schools or shoot any public place for that matter, because we live in a world where you immediately know if you say or do something that's breaking the norms. And these last several years also led me to realize the extent to which my daughter is expected to mask her authentic self 
in service of the comfort of others or norms she's internalized that imply her authentic way of speaking and moving and engaging in the world is just not okay. So now I have a very special place in my heart for those who are living life their own way. And and just a side note here, we're learning autism in girls and women has been so, so underdiagnosed and misunderstood as we're have been looking at it through the lens of how young boys presented with autism. And for so long, like so many other ways of living and being, we've labeled and pathologized and addressed these differences in ways to extinguish their uniqueness while further colluding with stereotypes around being blunt or emotional or obsessive or, this is my favorite, not being able to read a room. And these pressures feel like such a power over move. With one way of being, setting the standard as the baseline of what it means to be a thriving, functioning human in this world, so many people are set up for failure. And over the years, I also watched as, you know, there were mostly moms who were so committed and so devoted to their kids, rightly so, that I was around in the many waiting lobbies over the years during speech and occupational therapy sessions that I saw in them as such a fear of their kids being seen as different or stigmatized and being left out. I mean, there's a good reason. But I also saw them afraid that their kids weren't going to be able to follow the path that they had in their mind, what was best for their kid. And so the pressure to try and cure autism through changing diet or extreme behavior modification programs and shoot many other things that have since been challenged and even debunked became the mission of so many of these amazing parents I got to know. But I had to step back from this frenzy, and my husband and I ended up walking our own, braving the wilderness path, because the path everyone else was pointing us towards did not feel true to our values or what was best for our daughter. And this path has been fruitful, but it's also had some challenges. And while The awareness and patience has been beautiful over the years. You know, we we see the the lack of birthday invites and playdates and, you know, felt how minimal they were because inclusion is very inconvenient. It's also uncomfortable and extremely awkward. (laughs) And my life is one stream of awkward moments after the other. And I've learned facing your discomfort with neurodivergence means facing your ableism. And when I face my own ableism, I continue to be humbled, but also refined. And I'm still in it, and I live it with the rest of you in a world that idolizes a certain way of living and a body type and what it means to be successful. And we have a lot of work to do to make our homes, our places of work, our schools, our faith communities, and more equitable and welcoming to those on the autism spectrum, which is why I was so excited and honored to talk with today's guest. (laughs) I devoured his inaugural book in almost one sitting. He wove his career in political journalism and his passion for music into his book on autism, which delighted me to the core. And his book is also a beautiful testament to those with neurodivergence and other intersectional identities that have been marginalized. It's written in a wonderful way and is now my number one recommendation when people ask for a book to read about autism. 
Eric Garcia is the senior Washington correspondent for The Independent and the author of the book, We're Not Broken, Changing the Autism Conversation. He's also a columnist for MSNBC, and he previously worked as an assistant editor at the Washington Post Outlook section and an associate editor at The Hill, as well as a correspondent for the National Journal, Market Watch, and Roll Call. He's also written for The Daily Beast, The New Republic, and Salon.com. And Eric is a graduate of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And listen for Eric's vision for his book and why he did not want it to solely be a memoir or focus on an overcoming story that would collude with what he dubbed pity porn. And pay attention to how Eric had to face his own internalized ableism as he navigated his needs for supports and his relationship with success. And notice how Eric connects the dots with public policy and our obsession with a burdened definition of health. Now, please welcome Eric Garcia to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Eric, welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation, and I thought I would just jump in and talk about your amazing book, which is actually, in no hyperbole, the best book I've read on and about autism. And I just want to hear from you, what was going through your mind when you decided to write We're Not Broken, Changing the Autism Conversation? And more specifically, what did you want to accomplish? And what did you want to make sure you did not do with this book? Yeah, the the, the what I did not want to do is also, I think, just as what is important as what I did want to do. I think the thing that I wanted to do so let, I'll backpedal. Back in 2015, I was a really young reporter. I was living in Washington, D.C. I was covering economic policy. I was perfectly happy to do that for the rest of my life. Then what happened was I was at a party with a guy by the name of Tim Mack. And uh, Tim offered me a drink. I said, oh, I don't drink because I'm on the autism spectrum. I said, in medicine, I take kids mixed with alcohol. And instead of him saying, oh, come on, have a drink with me, he said, oh, there's a lot of autistic people in D.C. You should write about that. And then he kept pushing it and pushing it. And I thought, you know, I'm young in my career. I don't want to out myself. I don't want to do that. Then what happened, I was working in a national journal at the time. And um, they announced that they were shutting down the print magazine. And so the editor, a guy by the name of Richard Just, said, I want to just have the most go for broke kind of, I don't know if I can say this, balls to the wall stories that that I can get, you know, because like, because he was like, what are they going to do? Fire me, you know? And I think that was, so, so, so I proposed this idea that Tim told me to do. And initially I wanted it, I thought it would be just like a great front of the book piece, like kind of a chatty inside DC piece. And then, but then like what happened was he was like, well, why should this exist? You know, like, like any good editor asks. And I say, you know, I think we focus too much on trying to help autistic people try to cure aut- autism, but not enough on helping autistic people live their lives. It's like, there's your piece, go. So I wrote that piece. So I started writing that piece. And then around the same time, if you remember, this was 2015, uh, Donald Trump came into my life, came into a lot of people's lives. And, you know, it'd be easy. It's easy for me to be, and I'm not saying this to be anti-Trump or anything like that, but like, if you remember at one of the debates, I think it was like the second Republican debate, he was asked about his tweets about autism and vaccines. And, you know, he said that autism was an epidemic 
He talked about vaccines and he talked about all these things. And like, look, Trump is Trump. But like, there are a lot of people who believe what he believes, you know? And like, and as I've said long before, it's like, I feel like you're doing like, oh, he probably heard this from some rich person at some party. And, 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 you know, but there was a pipeline for him to get that. And I know, yeah, he's a Republican, but I grew up in Southern California. There are a lot of liberals who, uh, who believe the same thing. And uh, that's sad to me as a journalist was I was like, okay, if our public officials have these really terrible ideas about autism, that must lead to bad policy about autism, right? And politicians are only as good as the information that's given to them. So if they're given really terrible information about, um, you know, autism, then that must mean there are, you know, that we've made really terrible policy about, that affects autistic people's lives. And how does, so I wrote that piece for National Journal. I was like around, initially my editor wanted it to be 10,000 words. I cut it down to like 6,500 words. And then that led to the next, to the next question, which was, well, what does it look like if we have all these bad ideas about autism? And what, is, what do those policies look like? B, what could we do to make autism? What does that look like in real life? And then what can we do in real time to help autistic people? That was really the net, that, that was really what led to me thinking about it. And I think the other thing that I pursued, so, you know, I, you talked to me about what I didn't want to do. I think, Try to say this in a way that doesn't get me in trouble. <laughs> say it anyways. <laughs> I have a lot of respect for people who've written memoirs about autism. But A, I was 25 at the time. I didn't think I had anything really interesting to say as a memoirist. And B, I think what I wanted to do is I didn't want to, I think it's my training as a journalist. I didn't want it to just be about me because I worried that. If it was just about me, then there would almost be this impulse to individualize. Oh, there's this really inspiring person on autism. And I, you know, and look at how, how much he overcame. And that really wasn't what I'm about because my belief is that, you know, we're all a product of things around us that precede us and come around the same time as us. And it would not be a good, it would be a disservice to other autistic people to just talk about, you know, myself. And I think the other thing that I really um, didn't want to do was I didn't want this to be a book about, um, well, autistic people are super geniuses or superheroes or like, you know, they're all good at, you know, coding and things like that, which is why I tried to get the voices of non-speaking autistic people in the book. I tried to get people who were at intellectual disabilities or people who experienced homelessness. I wanted it to really capture the breadth of this experience of being autistic. And I didn't, I don't think I succeeded completely and you never do. And then conversely, I didn't want it to be pity porn, so to speak. Um, and it was really difficult to thread that needle. I think I probably could have sold more bucks had I done one or the other. 
I think I'm, mm. you know, because nuance doesn't sell books, you know. Um, but I would, it wouldn't have been true to myself, and it wouldn't have been true to other autistic people's experiences. What I really wanted to do is I wanted to say that my experience, and the reason why I, I write a lot about myself, is I try to say my experience is one person's experience. Mm-hmm. But this is how it got, how we got to this point. I try to include the context and the history and the politics around everything when it comes to my life. But also, like, how did that happen? Where do we go wrong? But also, what can we do differently? I think that was what I was trying to do. So when you talk about – so I think what I was trying not to do was just as important as what I tried to do. I've got a couple follow-ups for you. Um, uh, that was a long <laughs> answer. No, it was a great answer. I really appreciate it. Thank you. When you're in that initial conversation where your colleague was saying, you need to write about this, and you had just said briefly, I don't know if I want to out myself. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about that internal rumble about coming out and having just everybody know you're on the spectrum? Yeah. I mean, like my feeling was that it was nobody's business. And it's and, and I still kind of feel like, you know, it's funny when I wrote this book, I was like, okay, there goes my daily life. Um, but I think more than that, it was like, I didn't want there to be an asterisk to my success. Ooh. And like, I think that that was a lot of internalized ableism. Because <laughs> when I was a teenager and I applied for jobs, I did list that I had a disability. And I never heard back from a lot of those jobs. And like, look, they might not have, you know, I just might not have been qualified, but I always wondered, what if, you know, when you say that you're autistic, everybody brings in their preconceived notions about it. And everybody has an opinion about autism. Even if they aren't autistic, even if they only like their cousin's daughter, their cousin's coworker's daughter has autism, you know, more than any other disability, there's a need to, I, I feel like there's almost like this need to judge and prescribe and like become an armchair quarterback about it. But also, it was also kind of like, this is a very personal thing and it's nobody's business. Like people who need to know, know, and like people who don't, don't. Like I don't need to tell people. It's It governs how I live. Yeah, like some people say, oh, disability doesn't define you. Oh, yeah, it absolutely defines me. But like, uh, like just, you know, I don't drive a car. I take the metro. You know, we were talking about living in D.C. Uh, on top of that, I didn't, again, I didn't want to be the face of autism. And I still don't want to be the face of autism. I'm not an activist. I don't want to be seen as the face of autism. I want to be seen as an autistic person who covers my community, who writes about my community. And I think that's a very big difference. So again, like I didn't want to, that's what I did while I was trying to actively avoid. I appreciate that. I, it feels like you accomplished that in your book. And you also mentioned you wanted to avoid pity porn. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about your experience. That that hit hard as as a parent of someone on the autism spectrum. That landed with me when I was reading what you were saying. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. Well, 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 God provides fresh manna from heaven some days. Literally yesterday I was reading Slate. And uh, uh, do you read the Dear Prudence column on Slate? <laughs> yeah. 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 So Janae Desmond Harris got someone, or uh, he might have been a rerun. Like, you know, this one mom says that, like, this one woman says that, like, you know, she's getting older and she's talking about, like, her health problems. And then, like, one of her friends says, You don't have things nearly as hard. I have a son who's on the autism spectrum. And you're giving the face, and I know exactly the face <laughs> here. I know that exact face. Um, <laughs> 
Yeah, I often don't like the kind of, I have a, an autistic kid and it's hard, you know, and it's this. Because very rarely, and I'm not saying raising kids is easy. Raising autistic kids is easy. No more than raising a neurotypical kid is easy. Or raising anybody, raising anybody with a chronic illness or anything. Like, yeah, raising kids, is, you know, with any kind of challenges or any kind of disability is difficult because navigating the maze and all that. But very rarely is it productive. Yes. Almost always it is a way to monetize very Ooh. personal experiences. Wow. Yeah. And I really chafe at that. Even I think people with the best intentions open their kids up to criticism and judgment that they don't deserve. So even when people have the best of intentions, it can still open a can of worms. And I, it really bothers me. You know, maybe it's my journalistic training. You were taught from the beginning, you can't do something without someone's consent. That is why I don't, that's why I try not to interview kids or children, you know, hmm. unless I get their explicit consent. You know, I want to get the consent of the kids first and then the parents, but like, you know, like I, I really try hard not to. Uh, profit off of something that, like, I, I don't think uh, that that I think could be exploitative, and it, it very much, you know, to borrow from Jim Sinclair, it winds up becoming like a self-narrating zoo exhibit. Yeah. And my other feeling is that, like, those aren't your stories. You know, those are somebody else's stories, and the way that we frame these stories is really important. Hmm. And I think that was really what I was trying to do is think about the way we frame these stories. Yeah, it really was helpful for me because just even like you said, often when I share that I'm a parent of a kid on the spectrum, there's almost a bracing. So I'm sharing it for context. Yeah. Um, sharing it for like there's some sort of cons, but it often elicits a whole other conversation or that, you know, it's not, I'm not looking for pity porn. I'm looking for context. I'm looking for you to understand the meaning and motivation between why I'm, you know, talking about this or advocating for this, that type of thing. So, but it's tough. Like, like you said, there's so many uh, different views of the spectrum. It's really misunderstood. And you even, you know, you talk about this with politicians, yeah. that they're as good as the information get. You talk about my old boss, even in this book, who wrote the Americans with Disability Act with his incredible aide, Bobby Silverstein and others. But you even address that he kind of shifted some of his questioning towards the end of his term because he kept hearing about it from his constituents. That's part yeah. of his responsibility to ask. But then in the land of sound bites, then these things do get perpetuated and, you know, it leads to a lot of poor social proof and and how we do that. So I, I appreciate that. And I also think the same goes for leaders, whether they're business owners, educators, you know, leaders in faith communities, um, who is feeding them the inter information? Who gives information to elected officials is really important. Yeah. You know, I, I think a lot about, you know, your girl boss, Tom Harkin. And one of the things that was really important for him, I think, was he had an open line of communication to, you know, the, the, the adapters and yep. the uh, the World of Quads and Pat Wright. Uh, I think that was incredibly important for Tom Harkin and for Ted Kennedy 
and for Bob Dole and for uh, Tony Coelho. Right. Um, you, 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 you know, to have that. Conversely, I think what was interesting was that um, the ADA was not made with autistic people in mind. Conversely, the IDEA, and I read about right. how they were yep. passed and signed during the same time, or I should say the IDEA was a reauthorization of the Education and Children Act. That's right. It's not a coincidence that George Miller, who was a Democrat from California and represented the Bay Area, was the person who helped write the IDEA. And there was that concurring report about how autism had been mis- misunderstood. It's not a coincidence that uh, that he was in the Bay Area because there were a lot of autistic activists from the Bay Area. That was really where the, 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 the seeds were beginning, you know, where the seeds were being planted. It, it, it was really important, I think, to note that Harkin, Dole, Bush, all of them, they didn't have the understanding about autism that we would later that we would later have. You know, so 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 that is really it's incredibly important to recognize and contextualize how these things happen. So you, you you know you know it was the uh, it was during the uh, signing of the individuals. Yeah, they said autism has suffered from a historically inaccurate identification with mental illness, and that including autism in the IDA was quote meant to establish autism definitively as a developmental disability and not as a form of mental illness. And you know that's not to denigrate people with mental illness. What it was saying was that this is a very specific thing. Up until then, just ten years before. Autism was seen as a form of schizophrenia, like it had just gotten a separate diagnosis from schizophrenia in 1980. So it was incredibly important to include those things. And I think that, as you said, it all comes down to how do people get information and what kind of information people get. And that is especially true of policymakers. Leading is hard. Leading is also often controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, your boundaries. Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence, clarity, and calm. Now, I know you don't mind making the hard decisions, but often the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Now, leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is actionable and aligned. So when the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then Unburdened Leader Coaching is for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than you were taught. To start your Unburdened Leader coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com 
and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. You mentioned internalized ableism and I, and I'll, you know, parenting my kids is definitely teasing out all of that within me and it continues to do so. Um, and you write about some common and yet very harmful sentiments people often have said to you yeah. or others, you know, that you interviewed talked about. And I'd love to read a few and just have you, you know, speak what, about what comes up for yeah. you. Yeah. Uh, okay, let's do this. Let's do a free Lightning st- round. Lightning round. So the first one is you don't look autistic. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think that that's one where we, you know, I'm like, okay, what does your version of autism look like? You know, because yes, autism does look like somebody who can't speak. Mm-hmm. And it looks like somebody who has an intellectual disability. But also, it could look like me. It could look like your neighbor down the street. It could look like your coworker. Oh, there was that. But also, I think that one of the things is that we have a very antiquated look on autism. Or if somebody can't speak, we tend to think of them as like Raymond Babbitt and Rain Man. And like, that's a whole other thing. You can listen to a whole podcast I did dragging Rain Man. So there's that. But also, like, I think one of the. One of the weird things is that, like, I think a lot of people, again, people bring their preconceived notions to autism all the time. And autism looks like very different things. But also, we kind of limit what autistic people can and can't do. So, for example, I give in the book is there's this young man named Hari Srinivasan. At the time, he was a student at Berkeley. And he is non-speaking. And, you know, so by virtue of that, a lot of people would meet Hari and probably think he's, quote, unquote, low-functioning. But he graduated from Berkeley, and now he's at Vanderbilt uh, getting a graduate degree. Conversely, I interviewed this woman who went by the pseudonym Aria. She can speak, is married, has a house, but she couldn't graduate college, and she couldn't find work. So who's the high-functioning or low-functioning one? Uh-huh. You know, because, and it goes to why, in my response is that those labels don't work. Well, that was my next one. It's like, you know, you're high functioning autistic, so you don't have it that bad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like the, the response that I have is that like, yeah, someone might be high functioning, but they can still have meltdowns. Yep. They can still have sensory overload or you yes. know, like me, I can't, you know, I think it's, a, I think that those labels don't really work because it, high functioning and low functioning. Hey, this goes back to Hans Osberger. Yes. Oof. The difference between somebody who's a Nazi and somebody who collaborates with the Nazis is just a uniform. Mm. I don't care if you have a Nazi card, like a Nazi party card, like you sent kids to their death. So like, A, that's a very eugenics idea. So let's just put that out there. B, I think that it's really based on what we see, on what neurotypical standards of society see, rather than what they can actually accomplish. Going back to what I said, you know, Hari, many people would think he's low functioning, but then like a lot of people might say that somebody else is high functioning, but if they have trouble finding a job, if they have trouble or if they have a learning disorder, then like, you know, who's the high functioning or the low functioning there? And it goes to the fact that, I don't know if I can say this on the podcast, but that's really just bullshit. It really doesn't, it does a disservice and automatically what it does is it sets expectations at these ridiculous benchmarks. Yes. 
So, because think about it this way. If you call somebody low functioning, that gives policymakers more of an incentive to not spend as much in the schools. Yeah. Spend as much in helping with transition development. It is all the more incentive to send them into cognitive care settings. Whereas if someone is high functioning, a lot of people might say, oh, well, these are the people we really need to invest in. But conversely, the flip side is, well, they don't need that much. You don't need to spend that much money on them. You don't need to have that many resources or adapt or, or, or make our offices more accessible. Again, these labels are meant to, as a rationale or an excuse to not allocate the proper resources. Yeah, there's a lot behind it. And so that kind of lead up to the another one. Another problematic sentiment is, you know, you're smart. Why do you need accommodations? Uh, yeah, the, 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 the answer to that is like, I mean, because I thought that for the longest time, like I thought, and I write about this in the book, I thought, okay, I made it. I don't need that many accommodations. Ignoring the fact that the only way I got there was through accommodations. I think that what we don't realize is that accommodations don't lower the bar. They just allow more people to participate and allow people to be judged on their merits and allow them to rise and fall on their merits rather than a lack of accommodations. Once you make a place accessible, then somebody can succeed or fail based on their own skills. And I, you know, it's funny because, you know, a lot of people say, well, we don't have a lot of autistic students here. You can't be autistic. I'm like, that's really kind of a tautology. You don't have autistic students here because you haven't made it accessible. (laughs) Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I should say, like, I went to the University of North Carolina, which, as I like to say, as they like to say, is the first public university. But a lot of the buildings were not that accessible. Right. You know, some, a lot of them were like they were forced to, but some buildings were not that accessible. So imagine that these places are not that accessible for people with quote unquote visible disabilities. How much more inaccessible are they for people with quote unquote invisible disabilities? Yeah. And here, I have another doozy for you that actually my husband and I heard a, l- a lot from from people we knew early on in my daughter's diagnosis and is, well, what can you do to cure your autism? Yeah. Yeah. Well, like, I mean, there's a whole cottage industry for that. And you can read the book if you want to understand it. But like the, the it's rooted in fear, right? The, the 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 one thing that unites the kind of the the the, the anti-vaxxers and the cure freaks and all of them is this the, it's this underlying idea that autism is a bad thing and needs to be removed from society. And that is really kind of terrifying in a lot of ways. You know, there was this there was a study that came out, I don't know if you saw it last week, there was a study that showed that like they could, there's this test that apparently like with a single strand of hair, they could be able to find like, even before like autistic kids start to meet, miss milestones. I'm sure, you, I don't know if you saw that. And like, that raises a lot of ethical questions for me, you know, like, okay, but like what parts, you know, how much is this, you know, you kind of playing God and you kind of like determining which person, like which traits you want and how, and you kind of engineering the kid you want rather than helping the kid that you have. 
that raises a lot of ethical quandaries that really worry me. Well, you also raised, you wrote about this really poignantly that by curing, in effect, erasing something that's intrinsically a big part of you is erasing you. That really landed with me too, of like, we got to get rid of something that makes you you. And that in itself is deeply problematic too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Like, how do you, at what point is it like, look, I don't want to, because whenever I talk about this, people automatically say, oh, well, you're not saying autism is a disability or you're not saying that there aren't impairments. There are absolutely. So like 30% of autistic adults have epilepsy. Like, um, that's a bad thing. Like, we should want to try to figure out the way, like, how to mitigate that. Like, how to help people not have, because like, people die from epileptic seizures. It's one of the biggest killers of autistic people. Hmm. Um Heart disease is one of the biggest killers of autism people without intellectual disabilities, followed by suicide. Yeah. Uh, there are plenty of comorbid. A lot of autistic people have gastrointestinal problems. Like, of course you want to solve those things. What worries people, I think what worries a lot of people like myself, is you almost, by focusing so much on the, aut- on the autism, it comes at the expense of focusing on those things that, uh, that autistic people really need. And also, you're basically, to borrow from Jim Sinclair, you're basically saying the kid you have, you wish they didn't exist. Yeah. Like, at what point do you kind of, you're saying that the way that they live and the way that they love and the way that they speak and the way that they, or they don't speak or the way that they communicate, that that's not a valid way of being. Yeah. So it raises more ethical quandaries than it fixes. Yeah. And really, instead of, as you, you wrote about this too, and you touched on just now, instead of doing the things we can to help folks on the spectrum live more vibrant, safe, healthy, vital lives, we don't want to just exile it. We want to like raise the bar and how we are supporting those in our culture. So yeah, thank you for allowing me to do touch on some of those quick fire questions. I want to take you back. You mentioned University of North Carolina, you went to Chapel Hill, and you shared a tender story in your book from the day that you graduated. Um, yeah. And I, I, again, I think there's just as I'm my, my daughter and I are just talking, she's, she's in ninth grade. So we're talking about colleges yeah. or in the early stages. But there's yeah. this moment where you're, you know, you were thinking, you know, you're at graduation, you see your family who had just rushed there, you looked at them, you looked around this community that you cultivate that you considered home. You know, what were you thinking in that moment? I think what I was thinking was, on one hand, I was grateful that I had this experience. Like, I loved my friends and I loved the experience that I had. On the other, I think I was kind of just saying, like, oh, wow, this is going to be, this is the end of something. And I really didn't want to leave. And I didn't want to say goodbye to this really important thing, this time when I really felt accepted and loved by people. So it was really hard for me to do that. Uh, So I think that that was really kind of this, this kind of duality. Right. Yeah, but it was also kind of a, a learning and growing moment of like, okay, everything is finite, mm. but what do you take away from it? What do you learn from it? So, yeah. 
In your book, you, you actually you write about two dominant myths surrounding autistic people in the workforce specifically that I really yeah. appreciated. You talked about low expectations on the ability or capacity for work or types of work, and then two, viewing those with autism as hyper-competent in the fields of science, technology, engineering, and math. So I'd love for you to walk me through- Or, or, or almost hyper-productive, right? Hyper-productive, yes. Um, hyper-competent yeah, and hyper-productive. Those are, yeah, like those, those are kind of the two big selling points that you see a lot of companies selling now. Uh, it was really like, again, it was like, I really didn't like that binary. And like, I think that, I think that journalism, I think that media as a whole, and I'm not, and I'm saying this because I'm, I'm in media and I can understand this. We kind of like those, those two poles. We like the extreme vibe off those extremes. Yeah. We there's do. a lot of people in between. And also, we wind up, you know, um, boxing in the people on those on those tours of the poll in ways that don't really serve either of them, you know. So, like, I think one of the things that I that I saw was uh, a lot of people who worked in science, technology, engineering, mathematics fields. Yeah, they were successful, but it took them a lot of work. It took them being a working in places that were accessible or adaptable, or uh, and, and the people who kind of weren't able to find jobs. There's a reason for it. It wasn't because they weren't competent. A lot of them were smart, hardworking, competent people. They just didn't have the same opportunities. Right. And then there's all those people in between. And I think that you know, from my experience meeting so many autistic people, I was like, wait, these people didn't succeed because they were smart or great. It was because they were just not they, they just didn't get the same opportunities as as everybody else uh, in my like i think it's that line for the great gatsby in my younger more vulnerable years my father gave me so some advice that i've been turning into my mind ever since whenever you feel like criticizing anyone he told me just remember that all the people in this world haven't had the same advantages you've had so like in the same way i was i think that what i saw was i was like this doesn't, you, you know, autistic people should be allowed to be extraordinary and ordinary at the same time they shouldn't <laughs> have to live in those polls, I understand the impulse behind people making these kind of hard sells. Like you see this a lot of these autism at work programs, but it almost reminds me of the kind of model minority you see with Asian Americans. Like uh, they, they're all, they all go to medical school because they have tiger moms and things like that. Or it's just as ridiculous as saying like, Oh, Black people are inherently better at sports, you, you know, because of their physicality or things like that. It is very uh, patronizing, even when it even when it's in the fashion of being very complimentary. Yeah, well, and I so then how can neurotypical leaders in academia, business, mental health, all the spaces, how can we counter these myths in practical ways? I, mean, I think the thing you need to do is listen to autistic people, first and foremost. And I think the other thing is you need to also ask yourself, like, okay, where did you get this information? Uh, How did this come about? Why did this come about? These things we believe don't exist in a vacuum. Just because someone says something, that the, the power of somebody just saying something and it becoming just accepted, but not questioning why. We take it as gospel, you know, that is, but it is so powerful to just want to believe something 
because it jives with what we believe already. Exactly. So I think it's really important. Because like on one end, the book is about autism, but it's also a book about disinformation. <laughs> it sure is. You know, and you bring up a really good point, though, too, that if we're going to really, if we're going to listen to folks on the spectrum to learn how we can counter those myths, we need to have folks around us on the spectrum. We have to be intentional yeah. about that and not, again, not silo in like, a, again, the low, the binary of the low expectation or the hyper productive, hyper competent dynamic is hurtful to all. It really is hurting. It hurts everyone in the community. So, so I appreciate that. And there's so, you, you go into it in such a thorough way in the book. So I encourage everyone listening to check that out. And I, I want to shift just briefly because you you touched on the asterisks. You didn't want to have an asterisk kind of by yeah. different things on your resume. So I'm curious how you view success and how it's different from what you refer to as pity or inspiration to porn type of success, often touted with those on autism. Or often tied with us with autism. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that one of the things I should say is that, like, I've, I've let go of that idea now. And it's like, you know, my feeling is now is that my accomplishments are my accomplishments. And nice. I know what it took for me to get to where I go. You know, so, like, one of the things that I often say is that, like, yeah, I'm pretty sure that I got into UNC because of affirmative action. Like, I do, there's no way I could have gotten to the university without affirmative action. But that doesn't take away the hours of work, the, the, the long nights that I spent in the library. That doesn't take the going to tutoring sessions and all this and that. So, like, the asterisk, like, who's putting – it's really important for me to now ask, like, okay, well, who's putting the asterisk on? I'm, I'm a big uh, – you know, I'm a, you know, just background. I'm a big San Antonio Spurs fan, NBA. And, like, they won their first championship the year that there was a, there was a strike. There was an NBA lockout. And so a lot of people say, oh, well, that was just, you know, that was a fluke. But then, like, the San Antonio Spurs won four more championships after that. So, like, can you really put an asterisk after that? You know? Uh, yeah, we all kind of have asterisks to our success. And who is hmm. the ones who are, who are measuring the benchmarks? There we go. It's really all about you and whether you and how you succeeded, how you got there. You know what your accomplishments are. You know, hopefully, you know, there's some people who like are Donnie and Kruger and think that they, that they, that they, you know, report on third base and thought they had a triple, you know, um, but there are also <laughs> things, there are also people who, who I think that you, you don't have to abide by like, oh, I didn't do this. So therefore there we go. I don't belong here. No, you got there because for whatever reason you got there, you know? Some people, not, not like if you're George Santos, then there's a whole other thing. But you know, oh, uh, but <laughs> by you, you lying, know, that's, that's, that's not that, success. That, no, that's is, not success. Come on, <laughs> I think that's very different. But it is. <laughs> it is incredibly different. Um, well, I see your point. Definitely, I'm curious how how did writing your book impact your view of success personally. And, you know, just in terms of just even uh, those and those on the autism spectrum. Yeah. I mean, I think that what it did is it forced me to shed a lot of my preconceived notions about autism. Mm. Like it forced me to shed my beliefs about my, my, my internalized ableism. I can and tell the expectations that. I said for not speaking like autistic people, autistic people with intellectual disabilities. It, it forced me to shift. Like if you don't walk away from writing about something without your beliefs change somewhat a little bit, then you're doing it wrong, you know? Right. I think that you have to, you have to let the facts be for themselves, and you have to like change your beliefs. 
do that. If you don't do that, then you're just, you know, you haven't learned anything. Uh, I think there was that. I think that what I learned is that there are multiple ways to be happy as an autistic person. You know, again, like who is measuring whether someone is ha- has a fulfilling or full life? Like what? Who builds those benchmarks is just is an important question. I think the other thing that I learned is that um, there are is that um, autistic people have been here all along, and it's just that we we have to listen to them. I think what it did is that it, it forced me to say, okay, my community isn't listened to, and I want to make sure that they're they're treated fairly. So, like, how do I make how do I take this and through with other communities? How do I make sure that I'm not writing very myopically? When I have to write about other communities, how do I take what I learned from doing this and apply it elsewhere? I think that's really important. Uh, it's powerful. How do I make sure that I'm not pigeonholing a community and not writing in a patronizing way about a community? You know, because because I want to write about other things. I want to make sure that I tell other stories accurately when I'm given the opportunity. Then there are other times where I need to fall back. So I can't wait to see what else you write. I've got to wrap up. I've got some quick fire questions for you. Are you ready? Some okay. more. These are the ones a little. These are a little bit more fun and a little lighter than the ones earlier. I'm curious, what are you reading right now? Oh, okay. So I'm reading my uh, my friend Ali Vitali's book, Electable, which is really good. It's a book about um, the whole question about electability around women running for office. Okay. Uh, Ali is a reporter at NBC News. And uh, she covered Elizabeth Warren's campaign, Hillary Clinton's campaign. So, like, she does a really great job. Uh, I'm also reading on audiobook. I'm still listening to The Power Broker. So I, I made it a point. I was like, I'm going to read. Uh, I, I visited New York City a while back. And I said, like, okay, I'm going to read Robert Carroll's The Power Broker after, after visiting New York City. Like, I want to understand this. Uh, and I said, that, like, after I do this, then I'm going to try to listen to the Glenn Johnson books. I'm making it a point now, like, because I have such a short attention span, I want to make sure that I read one big book through audiobook. And audiobook, I've noticed, really helps me. So that, I'm doing nice. that. Good to know. Best TV show or movie you've seen recently? Oh, good question. I really liked watching The Bear recently. That's uh, my favorite movie of last year, or TV show, I should say. Oh, was it, yeah, what, yeah, what no, did you I, like about it? What did you love about it? I, I liked just like the camera angles. Like you really felt like you were working in a kitchen the whole time. It was it was stressful. It was one of the most stressful things I've ever watched. But it was <laughs> totally. so incredibly done. It was well read. It was um, also like everybody else. I loved Andor. Um, oh, so good. So yeah. Um, as far as movies, uh, last movie I saw that was really great. Um, Last time I had a lot of fun in a the movie theater was uh, when I went to go see Glass Onion. So, oh my gosh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was yeah, a fun, so. that was a ride. Um, favorite '80s bit of pop culture? I have a feeling I know where you're going to go with this. Oh, okay. So I like I'm a big fan of I'm a big fan of '80s hair metal. You know, so like people see me, see me tweet about that. <laughs> me too. Uh, a, you know, I'm a big I'm a big Van Halen fan. Uh, I, you know, uh, I've tweeted a lot about the story how I met Slash from Guns N' Roses when I was twelve. I was jealous when I read that. I just have to yeah, say, uh, I, I read about that in the book. Yeah. So, are you a David Lee Roth or a Sammy Hagar? David Lee Roth every day, every day, every day. Oh yes, jump every time I see him do that toe jump. The '80s yeah. part of me is stoked. What um, is a mantra that you have right now? I think one of the things that I've learned that I've done is that because I was so busy writing the book. I was so busy seeing my family. I was so busy working and covering the midterms and all that. I think one of the things that my mantra this year, my resolution, is to really just be present for mm. 
people around me. Uh, so I think that's I think that's what I'm doing with my mantras. Be present with those around you. I love it. <laughs> what is an unpopular opinion you hold? Oh, <laughs> try to think how much trouble I want to get into. The more, the uh, better. <laughs> okay. Uh, this is this is this is one that I really. That that will be unpopular. I know it'll be unpopular just because I know I know you're a political junkie. I've worked on Capitol Hill for a while. I actually think Trump is not as weakened after the midterms that people think he is. I think that when Trump gets back on the road, when he gets back on doing his rallies and things like that, I think that the that the the quote unquote magic will come back again. I covered a few Trump rallies during the midterms. I think that he does have a lot of influence. I think the fact that he was whipping votes for Kevin McCarthy this last week shows he still has a lot of influence in the GOP. So, like, I, and, and and also, Ron DeSantis has a shot. Don't get me wrong, but I think a lot of people are inflating his abilities just because he's in Florida. So, like that. That's like if there's one thing to watch in 2023 and 2024. You, you know, just watch that. I, I don't think Ron DeSantis has it in the bag, and I think. As much as people may may or may not like it, yeah, Trump still has a lot of influence in the GOP. So yeah, that's my unpopular thing. I don't disagree with you, sadly. And who or what inspires you to be a better leader in human? Oh, I think the thing that inspires me is recognizing that everybody is going through stuff. Mm. You know, one of the things that I've learned is that res- empathy brings resiliency. Because if you realize that, like, when people are giving you hell, chances are they're going through hell. I think that that allows you to keep going and keep pushing forward and and not take things too personal. Mm. So I think that's one thing. It's beautiful. Eric, thank you so much for making time. I know that you're on deadline. So thank you for working this interview into you, into your day. Where can people find you if they want to connect with you? Yeah, you can find me. Unfortunately, I tweet way too much. So tweet me at Eric M. Garcia. Uh, you know, follow me. I, I, I do a lot more autism stuff on Instagram. So Eric M. Garcia 14 is, 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 is there. You can also email me. You can read my stuff over at The Independent, my column over at MSNBC. Uh, and, and, and yeah, let's talk. Reach out to me. I'm, I, I like listening and hearing from people. Yeah. All right, Eric, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Okay, before you go, I want you to think about what you define as broken and what you define as whole. Now, Eric, today, he gave us a lot to think about. I know for me, when I was thinking about this word broken, I looked up the definition and one of the definitions means the opposite of whole. And we chase some ideal of wholeness and do our best to exile any parts of us that would be rejected or deemed shameful for fear of not belonging. And this is just tragic. And as our understanding around living in a neurodivergent culture grows, we need to welcome and make space for the many ways to learn, connect, work, live, and love. At the same time, these shifts on what we deem normal become a threat to those who are holding on with such a tight grip to status quo, standards, and norms. But when you redefine your definition of normal, it will require you to move out of your boxes of what it means to be enough and, gosh, this this term makes me gag, normal. And this is the work of an unburdened leader. 
Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. If this episode was moving to you and impacted you in a positive way, I'd be honored if you went and left a review and a rating and shared it with someone else you think would benefit from it. Now you can find this episode, show notes, sign up for the free Unburdened Leader weekly email and get free Unburdened Leader resources along with finding out ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com. Thank you.